Welcome to CII Podcasts. Thank you very much. I should preface everything I say by saying that if I say anything that is smart or wise or forward-looking, it is reflecting what I learned from other members of our expert group, like uh, Professor Stern, or from those who provided input to the drafting of the report, like my friends Masood Ahmed and Homi Karas. And if I say anything that you find unwise or imprudent, it is because I used my own originality. I was reflecting as I flew here uh, from Boston yesterday that it has been 32 and a half years since my first visit to uh, India, very early in my time as the chief economist of the World Bank in uh, 1991. At that time, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. At that time, India had not yet embarked on the bold turn to reform that would be commenced some months later. At that time, it would have been almost unimaginable that the principal organ of global economic decision-making would have been a G20 that embraced countries from all over the world. At that time, if someone had imagined that there would be a G20, they would not have imagined that India would be its chair and an extraordinarily productive chair it was. At that time, it would not have been expected or anticipated that the child mortality rate on planet Earth would fall by 50% in the subsequent 33 years, nor would it have been anticipated that literacy rates would double, nor would it have been anticipated that poverty would fall as rapidly as it has, and certainly the economic strength of India is not something that any of us would have dared to anticipate at that time. It has been, all things considered, with all of the problems, a remarkable period of 30-some years for the planet. Indeed, I would dare to suggest that if one took a very wide perspective, perhaps the kind of perspective that historians will take in 2400, perhaps the kind of perspective that an observer on Mars would take of the human experience, they would look at the human experience. And they would note two 
substantial discontinuities. They would observe that standards of living in London in 1800 were barely different from standards of living in Athens at the time of Pericles. And that sometime in the 19th century, with the Industrial Revolution, there was a tilt towards growth. And that tilt towards growth meant that for the first time in human history, albeit only in certain parts of the world, people at the end of their lives saw quite different standards of living than existed at the beginning of their lives. Indeed, they called it the Industrial Revolution because at the end of a human lifetime in Britain in the 19th century, standards of living were perhaps 50, perhaps 75% higher than at its beginning. Progress by a factor of 1.5 or progress by a factor of 1.75. And that was a profound discontinuity. I would suggest to you that there has been a second profound discontinuity. You can argue about just how to date it. You can argue about its causes. You can argue about the locus of places in which it has taken place. But it is a discontinuity around what has happened in Asia, and it is what has happened over the last long generation. And it is a discontinuity in which it is possible to imagine that for large numbers of people, that life expectancy, that standards of living at the end of a human life expectancy are not increased by 1.5 or increased by 1.7, but are increased by a factor of 10 or much more than that. Indeed, at a growth rate of even 3%, standards of living increase eightfold over a human lifetime. And that, in the region of the world where the most people live, is an event without precedent in human history. It is related to another great change. It is related to a change that with all of the debates, with all of the arguments, something that I am very confident is not going to change. We have a truly global economy and a truly global society. Tariffs may come and go, but no state can stop the movement of a microbe. Restrictions on capital may come and go, but the atmospheric level of carbon dioxide 
is the same everywhere on this planet and is determined by the collective actions of all of us. The extent of intercommunication between our societies is profoundly different than it ever was before. I now don't think when I make a phone call about whether my phone call is crossing an international border. I remember as a child, my family spent a year in uh, London. And there was an occasion when we were going to speak with my grandmother on the telephone. And it was so expensive to have that phone call that my parents had us rehearse what we were going to say to my grandmother so that my brothers and I could each get our remarks in within 45 seconds so that the call would be kept under three minutes. Nothing like that today, and we are not going back. So I'm going to say some scary and alarming things in a moment, but let's remember that we are all very lucky in the moment that we are alive and that what is at stake in everything that we are going to discuss is the continuation of a kind of progress that is unprecedented in human history. And yet, I say to you what I said to the G20 finance ministers when I was given an opportunity to briefly present the work of the experts uh, panel on which Rachel and Nick uh, have done such an extraordinary job and on which I was so fortunate to chair, co-chair, with your great friend, N.K. Singh. The world is on fire. It is literally on fire. If you look at the number of, not acres, uh, not hectares, of square miles that have burned in the last uh, year, it is figuratively on fire. If you think about the consequences of climate change for people everywhere, and it is in a broader sense on fire, if you think of the threats that we have to contain, climate change, I've also had the opportunity to work quite extensively on issues around pandemic, uh, pandemics. And I can tell you that there's a debate, but my best guess is that the return time to something as serious as COVID is probably within 20 uh, 
years. And so if you take climate, if you take pandemic, if you take the risks of conflict between great nations, looking at what has happened in Russia and Ukraine, looking at the change that has taken place between the relationship between my country and uh, China. This is a moment pregnant with opportunity, but cursed with tremendous risk. And that is why I think it was wise and propitious for India to focus its year of chairmanship of the G20 in the way that it has broadly and to seek to bring a particular focus to multilateral development banks. I'm reminded of a story from the Cold War period, and it's a philosophy in a way that informs the approach that I think we should take to these uh, issues. It informs the kind of passion and energy that Vera and Justin brought to our uh, report. At the Reykjavik summit, at the height of the Cold War, after Ronald Reagan had put nuclear missiles in uh, Europe, after Gorbachev had come to power at an enormously tense moment. They had a summit. And at some stage, they, the two leaders, went for a walk. The only person with them as they went for that walk was a translator. Their staffs were terrified as to what would happen. And they went for that walk. And President Reagan said to Mikhail Gorbachev, if the Martians launched an attack on the United States, would you come to our defense? Gorbachev was kind of stunned and kind of nonplussed. But then he said, yes, of course we would. If Martians attacked the Soviet Union, would you come to our defense? And Reagan said, of course we would. And from that moment on, they recognized a kind of common humanity, a common concern with threats 
to their citizens, they connected. They came closer in the next day than the world ever has to eliminating nuclear weapons. They didn't quite get there, but it signaled a profound change in that Cold War relationship. Well, I'm here to tell you that the best in astronomical science says that we have nothing to fear from Martians. But we have a great deal to fear from microbes. We have a great deal to fear from changes in the composition of our atmosphere. And we have a great deal to fear from what can come out of impoverished states. And that's why this is a moment when as much of international relations is about the successful fostering of global cooperation as it is about the balancing of global power. I worry more for my children and their children about the consequences of changes in the climate, about the risks of pandemic, than I do about any kind of military threat. Now, it was not this vision, but a vision not unrelated to it, that after the Second World War led to the creation of the international financial institutions, led to the creation of the World Bank, and over time led to a collection of regional development banks and domestic development bank institutions. I believe that the multilateral development banks are immensely important as international institutions. They are places unlike the vast majority of other international institutions where nations come together not just to talk, not just to agree, but to do, to touch the lives of people everywhere. They are institutions that respect and follow the principle of Archimedes, leverage. $20 billion of World Bank capital have over the last 40 years, last 60 years, financed some $800 billion in lending. And if I had put that $800 billion into today's dollars, it would have been more than $2 trillion in lending. That is an immense capacity to make a difference. And yet, and this is the central finding of our report, 
these institutions need to be transformed if they are to meet the challenges of a world on fire. Continuity is not enough. The need now is for discontinuity. I say to you that evolution is a gradual and an inadequate process when we think about the needs of the multilateral development banks. We have seen a profound thing happen in the last 15 years. I am old enough that I have to say that I don't change my mind all that often. That's not a strength. It's just a report on what's true. But educated by Nick and many others, I have changed my mind very profoundly on how to think about climate change. Some time ago, I believed that the essence of the climate change problem was simply making the use of carbon more expensive. Because if it was more expensive, then people would use it less, and it came with bad externalities, so the externality should be internalized. And yes, that has a very large role to play if we are going to address climate change. But ultimately, I believe the world's peoples are not going to accept a vast and sharp increase in the price of energy. The people of the developing world are not going to say that it is okay for the people of the developed world to pull up the gangplank on development by insisting that since they have used up the atmosphere's capacity, others cannot use energy in the way that they have. And so as much as it as requiring as carbon pricing is important, I believe even more important is the dissemination of economically competitive renewable energy. And I believe there is a concept that has not gotten the weight that it should in conventional economics. And that is the forcing and development of technology. I have reviewed in some detail the history of environmental regulation in many countries. And it's very interesting. If you look at the cost in almost any country of a new weapon system or a new bridge or a new sports stadium, almost always it's cost when the project is actually implemented vastly exceeds the cost that was originally estimated. 
Yet, if you look at environmental policies, whether it is stopping smog in Los Angeles after World War II, whether it is stopping deadly fogs in London in the 1950s, whether it is stopping sulfur oxides in the United States in the 1990s, whether it is complying with fuel economy regulations in the United States in the 21st century, almost always the cost ends up being small relative to what was originally expected. And that has been the recent history. Solar power has come down far more rapidly in cost than anybody expected a decade ago. The same is true with respect to wind. The same is true increasingly, not there yet, not as much progress, with respect to batteries and storage. But it will come. And so I am much more optimistic today than I would have been a decade ago, that it is within reach, it is within reach to provide for ample and abundant energy that is renewable, that is not destructive of the world's climate, and that is abundant for all of the world's people. But I am also convinced that this is not something that will happen automatically. Another problem with conventional economic theory is that we emphasize, and we emphasize enormously, and we're right to emphasize, the concept of the externality. And it's a very powerful idea. Here's another very powerful idea, the chicken and egg problem, the problem of coordination at scale. Who wants to build electric cars if there are not going to be charging stations? Who wants to build charging stations if there are not going to be electric uh, cars? Who wants to invest in renewable electricity, if there's not going to be adequate storage capacity? Who wants to invest in storage capacity if there's not going to be essentially zero-cost electricity that is available to be stored? These two are market failures that require solutions. Multilateral development banks are, I believe, at the center of whatever chance the world has, and I think it is a good chance of meeting this challenge. That's why our report issues several calls. First, a call for a triple mandate rather than the current double mandate. Yes, efforts at combating global poverty need 
to continue. This is no time to let up in efforts to reduce global poverty. Yes, inclusive prosperity continues to be a continuing moral imperative. But those two imperatives must also be met with an imperative of sustainability. And so these institutions must take on as a central part of their work the mission of sustainability specifically and of global public goods more generally. We will not succeed in reducing global poverty, continuing the kind of growth described, the continuing the kind of progress in human development that I described without addressing and addressing in very strong ways sustainability. Second, they must treble in this decade their lending flows. It is, I'm basically an optimist. But I have to say that I find it discouraging to contemplate that last year, this year, next year, on the current path, the lending of the multilateral development banks to lower and middle income countries will be just large enough to cover the repayments that those countries make to the multilateral development banks. At a moment of unprecedented challenge and unprecedented opportunity, that is not good enough. And so, in line with the idea of tripling, we set an additional aspiration of tripling their lending levels by 2030. We emphasize, and hear me clearly on this, that there is important and meaningful scope for new financial engineering to increase the lending level of these institutions. That for too long, they have privileged a narrow and blinkered conception of financial risk relative to a broader and more humane concept of planetary risk and lent less than is their capacity. That's right. It is also right that they would ill-serve not just their shareholders, but the planet, were they to imprudently and excessively take on leverage in a way that would ultimately undermine their financial soundness. And that is why the steps that need to be taken in the short run 
to use their balance sheet more aggressively need to be complemented by steps to augment and expand their capital over time. And I would say that as that is done, and this is stepping outside of my whatever expertise I might have uh, in economics, I would hope that that process of augmenting capital could be a vehicle for important cooperation with, between all the world's nations. I am under no illusion that China and the United States are not going to have profound differences for many years to come. Equally, they share a common stake in the planet remaining safe. They share a common stake in the reduction of global poverty and the incidence of uh, fragile uh, states, and they share a common stake in there being institutions in which they can work together with all nations to promote a common humanity. And so these institutions need, need I would suggest, substantially augmented capital. And at the same time, because there are many nations that are not in a position to borrow, even at the terms offered by the international financial institutions, there needs to be a substantial augmentation of concessional resources. Third, there needs to be new mechanisms to receive finance and to support the activities of these institutions that in ways that are congenial to other actors and that in particular involve in a central way the private sector. To date, there has been vastly more talk about partnership than there has been actual partnership. To date, the institutions have been vastly more successful in levering public money than they have in providing leverage that supports private finance. Whether the means is a very substantial expansion in the use of their guarantee facilities, whether it is creative and innovative approaches to currency risk, whether it is finding ways to cooperate with the far greater share of wealth than has ever been held before in the form of sovereign wealth funds. There need to be new mechanisms if 
an adequate flow of capital is to be delivered. And last, these institutions need to be not just quantitatively bigger, but qualitatively better. I remember when I was Treasury Secretary, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, the finance minister of an important developing country. And as an American Treasury Secretary does, I asked him, what can we do to help your cooperation with the international financial institutions? And he paused and he said, I, I greatly value their assistance and I entirely appreciate their sincerity. But it has been my privilege in the last 24 weeks to meet with 25 mission chiefs from the international financial institutions. And it did occur to me that perhaps the work of the financial sector reform mission might possibly have been harmonized with the work of the Strengthened Financial Regulation Mission and the Encouragement of Financial Liberalization Mission. And I'm sure there were very compelling reasons why three missions were necessary, but I wonder if some reflection were not possible. He had a point. The institutions do not move at a 21st century pace. They do not relate to the private sector in a 21st century way. And they do not cooperate with each other in a 21st or even a late 20th century way. We can, we should, and we must do better. Now, I am under no illusion. One of the wisest things that I ever heard in thinking about international efforts came from a very experienced U.S. diplomat, and we were discussing a intractable conflict, seemingly intractable conflict, that the United States was seeking to mediate. He was very involved in the mediation. And he had just come back a bit discouraged from an unsuccessful effort at mediation. And he said, we cannot want peace there any more than the people who live there. And so ultimately, the world's global development effort is going to depend on all the world's peoples. Progress in reducing poverty in any country, yes, depends on external support, but it depends much more on the energy, the imagination, the wisdom, 
the strength, the work ethic of its peoples and its government. But the international community has an obligation to do everything it can to support the continuation of this remarkable second discontinuity in history that we are in the midst of. It's time to put out the fire. I believe the kinds of steps that India has led the G20 in proposing for the multilateral development banks can make an important contribution. We are on the road. Let's keep moving. Let's get going faster. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to CII Podcasts.